Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading from verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I'm going to pray and the band's going to lead us in song. Lord, as we prepare our hearts now to hear from your word, would you please give us our clarity and focus that we would leave other things from this week behind us, that we would turn our attention and focus to hear from your words. And would you please shape us by them, Lord? Now as we sing, would you also prepare our hearts as well as our minds that we would be willing to see Jesus for who he is and that we would be welcomed into his rest with open arms. Help us now, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. As you're well aware of now, We are beginning a brand new series this morning entitled Searching Life Under the Sun According to Ecclesiastes. And the big question that we are answering in this series is how can we find meaning and purpose in the world that we live in? How can we know that the life that we live now really matters? If you're sitting here this morning as someone who does not follow Jesus, I am so glad that you are here because I think that this series will show you how important it is that you do follow Jesus. And if you're here this morning as someone who does follow Jesus, I am also really glad that you are here because I think that this series will show you how important it is that you ought to follow Jesus. So, will you all come with us for this next eight weeks as we explore this really difficult and challenging, though ultimately vital book of the Bible? We really do hope that you will. Now, as you may know, I'm currently studying at Trinity Theological College uh, while training to be a pastor here at GBC. But immediately prior to going to college full-time, I was actually a maintenance worker uh, in a local Christian school. Uh, While I was there, there was this guy named Pete. He was our supervisor. Uh, My dad worked with us. He was there a few days a week while he ran his own business. 
Uh, and Chris, he drove the, he mainly drove the bus, and you know he'd been there probably longer than I'd been alive. Uh, and then there's an older guy in his 70s, and we nicknamed him Rocket Rod, uh, which was somewhat of an ironic name, if you know where I'm coming from. Uh, we all had our pl- part to play in the team, right? Uh, but something that was solely my responsibility for the better part of four years was to do the morning leaf blow. Uh, you may have seen a maintenance worker at a school do this morning leaf blow. Uh, you may even call it an experience as your eyes are flooded with dust and your freshly done hair is blown away. But the concept of it is quite simple, right? Over the last 24 hours, all the trees in the area have dropped their leaves, leaving the school in quite a mess. And the purpose of the morning leaf blow is to clean up all of the mess that has been made. Been made. Every morning, you comb over every inch of that school, uh, again, to push the leaves into a corner so that they can be picked up. It's very simple. But the conditions had to be just right for that morning leaf blow to be enjoyable. The wind had to be no more than 10 k's an hour. The leaves would need to be damp to be heavy enough to blow easily, but not soaking wet so that they stuck to the floor. And it needed to be early enough so that there were no students around, but late enough that the sun was up and you could actually see what you were doing. And let me tell you, these days were rare, very rare. Uh, The worst of the days were actually at the end of autumn uh, and the beginning of winter, because those were the months when the London plane trees would drop their leaves. I'm sure you're probably aware of these things. Actually, on the drive-in this morning, it's probably the first time I'd really noticed, but they, they all lined the streets there in Gosnell's town. Um, and our school had one among many that was around 25 metres tall right out the front, and it looked a lot like this one here. And every winter, this tree would drop countless leaves for me to pick up. And of course, not just all at once, right? It's not a one-and-done job, but it meant that every morning I would set out for that morning leaf blow And it would look like I had done absolutely nothing the day before. Morning after morning after morning, I would blow these leaves away, pick them up, put them in the bin, only for them all to be back there again the next day. It was a particularly frustrating job because the satisfaction of having cleaned up the leaves was fleeting and the sense of purpose in heading out each morning was futile. However, my frustration from the futility and fleetingness of that morning leaf blow, I think, is just a drop in the ocean compared to the writer of Ecclesiastes. In fact, I'm quite sure that it is just a drop in the ocean. The one thing that I want us to see and feel from our passage this morning is that all of life is an endless, wearisome cycle, and we need to come to Jesus, to find rest from it. As I've spoken with several people about the fact that we as a church are heading into a series in Ecclesiastes, the common response that I've had is, ah, everything is meaningless, hey? And this is what this book is famously or perhaps infamously known for. And it does not take long at all to get a sense of the writer's frustration at the futility and fleetingness of life. Ecclesiastes opens with the preacher's words, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What 
does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Right off the bat, the preacher sets the tone for the book and it's pretty bleak, isn't it? All is vanity. All is Havel. Now, you might be wondering, surely, preacher, not everything, right? Not every single thing in the world is fleeting and futile. So let's put him to the test. What is it that he is actually talking about here? When the preacher asks the question, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It is really helpful for us to note that he is not only talking about work here. It is not just a nine to five job that he has in mind. Rather, it is all of life. It is the exertion of one in all of their efforts. It is picking yourself up out of bed in the morning. It's making dinner. It's catching up with your friends. It is also your nine to five job. It's parenting and it's commuting to and from work. It's going to church. It's taking the kids to school and to soccer games. It's everything. It is all the toil at which one toils under the sun. And what is the question? What does man, so but not a male, but what does mankind gain? What is the gain? What benefit is there to all of the things in life that we do? You may already have a really good answer in your mind to the gain of life and all the things that you do, but we know what the preacher has to say, don't we? His implied answer is nothing. There is no gain. And that is why he opens with all is vanity. Everything is vanity because man gains nothing by their toil under the sun. I wonder how that sits with you at the moment. Let me encourage us not to quickly dismiss these words because while it might not feel like it, these are not only the preacher's words to us, but they are also God's words to us. Let us instead ask, why? Why does the preacher say that all is vanity and that nothing is to be gained by our toil under the sun? Well, first of all, it is because life is fleeting. The answer is right there in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. No matter how hard we toil, no matter how successful we are, no matter how much meaning we find in these things, no matter how much joy we find in these things, it is all vanity because it doesn't last forever. Our toil is limited to our own lifetime. There is no gain because a generation goes and a generation comes. The preacher contrasts our lives with the fact that, that the earth just keeps on existing while we as human beings come and go. The preacher asks us, how can there be any gain when it does not last? It is fleeting. Whatever gain we think that we have by our toil, 
it is all just going to end at our death anyway. Now, the preacher is going to expand on this in verses 5 through 7 as we see his reflections on the created world. So let's read through verses 5 through 7 again. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around the wind goes and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. We certainly get this sense of constancy in creation, don't we? That the sun continually rises and sets. The wind never stops blowing and the rivers just keep on flowing to the ocean. There is no end to these things. There is this cyclical nature, cyclical nature of the earth that the, that the preacher paints for us. Uh, the sun rises in the east. So for here, fast here in Perth, I'm going to, I tried to think of this before, the hills are there, right? Behind me somewhere. <clears throat> uh, for us here in Perth, every morning without fail, the sun comes up over those hills. And every evening without fail, you could go down to Cottesloe Beach and watch the same sun disappear over the horizon. Could you imagine a day where that doesn't happen? It's impossible, right? And the way that the preacher paints the picture for us is that it rises and it sets, and then it hastens back to the place where it rises again. Day after day, over and over, without fail, the sun rises and it falls. So too with the wind, says the preacher. It blows to the south and then goes around to the north and around and around it goes. So where does the wind move for us here in Perth? It's similar to the sun, right? On on those hot summer days, you just know that those winds are going to blast in from the hills and then by mid-afternoon, that Fremantle doctor is just going to blow on through. Almost like clockwork. The point is really clear, isn't it? Around and around, creation continues to do what it has always done and will keep on doing. That is its toil. And so we get this sense of its eternality, that it it remains forever, the preacher says. It keeps on going and there just seems to be no end. In this, creation testifies to the weariness of life, doesn't it? How exhausting is it to keep getting up day after day to keep on doing the same thing? To keep striving in your toil, knowing that the next day you've got to get back up and go again. It is no wonder that in verse 8 the preacher says that all things are full of weariness. And it's so interesting that he says that a man cannot utter it. And as I was preparing the sermon, it's exactly what I felt like. Like I had no words to kind of put to this concept. It's something that is to be felt rather than to be described. And I think that the preacher is just absolutely brilliant in using these creational realities of the sun, the wind, and the rivers to make us feel the weariness of life. You know that feeling when you crawl into bed at, a long of, uh, at the end of a long and really tiring day? It's like your body almost groan silently in relief, uh, or maybe sometimes not so silently, uh, that an end has come to your toil uh, just for a little while. All things are full of weariness. 
Boy, do we feel that in our society at the moment. We are constantly striving, chasing after something, whether it be out of necessity or pursuing something that we think will satisfy us. What is the classic Australian mantra? It's work hard, play hard. We pack our Monday to Friday so full of work and toil so that we can just escape reality for a couple of days and try to get away from it. Now, don't get me wrong, there is something that is really good about this uh, routine and rest uh, work-life balance. But why do we do this? What's the reason behind it? Is it to keep up with the Joneses next door? Do we feel the desperate need to work hard so that we can get the house or the car or the holiday? Do we need that second income to live the good life now and to keep up with society's expectations? Are we pursuing that Aussie dream of paying off the mortgage and getting the caravan for an early retirement? How many extra activities do we have our kids in just so we can keep up with that other family at school whose kids are excelling? Now, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But can you see how the preacher is showing us how wearisome all of these things are? How tiring it is to keep chasing these things. For his warning to us is, what is the gain? What are we really gaining from all this toil when it will all just pass away with us? Nothing, says the preacher. All is vanity. Life is fleeting. And he presses this home for us as he considers the experience of humanity in the rest of his poem there. And this is also to show us that life is futile. Let's read verses 8 through 11 again. The preacher says, All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I think his big point here in these verses is that nothing on earth can truly satisfy us and that our constant pursuit of finding it is futile. It is Havel. And he says that because the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing. Again, his poetic language, it's just brilliant for what comes to us apart from our eyes and our ears. Sure, you could, have, you could say that we have three other senses. We've got taste, touch, and smell as well. But can you see how he is summing up the whole of the human experience? All the seeing, all the hearing, all that we pursue, it does not ultimately satisfy us. And this is a huge reason for why all things are full of weariness. We constantly chase and pursue the next thing, trying to find the next thing that will satisfy us. And it's exhausting because there is no end to that pursuit. It's futile. 
Uh, now, there's something that I've been calling the Apple syndrome for a number of years now, but I'm very sure it's not original to me uh, because, as we've just read, there's nothing new under the sun. But the Apple syndrome is this. Uh, the technology company Apple are so good at making not only functional but also aesthetically pleasing products. I mean, they're just beautiful, right? When you see the advert or when you see someone else with the latest product, it just makes you want one. They're so good at making you feel like your life will be complete once you are holding onto that iPad or iPhone or MacBook. And I have fallen for this many times and I'm sure I will fall for it again. But once you make that purchase and you've had ownership of that product, you know, for maybe just two or three days, that's when the Apple syndrome kicks in. And you know what the Apple syndrome feels like, right? Meh. Meh. All the excitement of its arrival, all the sense of fulfilment of holding it, all the status of becoming an owner of the latest product, it all just falls away in just a matter of days. Just when you think you've got it, it slips away. And you know what happens after that, right? Within 12 months, that cycle will start all over again with the newest release of the next model. And this is not just unique to Apple products. You might be uh, the other people sitting here and be like, "I I don't care for Apple products. But we do this with everything, right? We do this with our jobs, with our cars, with our houses, with our gardens, with our clothes, with our relationships. The grass is always greener on the other side. And while we're so aware of this concept, we fall for it so much of the time, don't we? I know that I do. The preacher, while albeit quite depressing, he's much wiser than what we are. He can see the truth more clearly than us. And he says to us all, the eye is not satisfied with seeing And the ear is not filled with hearing. And he knows this because this is the way that it's always been and it will always continue to be. His experience and his perception nearly 3,000 years ago has not changed for us. That is the nature of wisdom. In verses 9 and 10, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been done already in the ages before us. has been already in the ages before us. And with the final twist of the knife, he says that not only has it always been this way, but that we will keep on forgetting it too. We will keep on not learning from what has gone before us. There is this well-known saying that I think is particularly poignant here, that the one who does not learn from history is destined to repeat it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is fleeting, It is futile and it's frustrating. An endless, wearisome cycle where there is no gain from our toil and the only end is death. 
And what are we to make of this? It can be really easy to see why some thought that Ecclesiastes shouldn't have been included in the Bible, right? But praise God that this is far from the only thing that the Scriptures have to say about where we find our purpose and meaning in life. While the preacher was far wiser than what I am or that what you are, he speaks incredible truth that we can learn from, but there is an, one that is even greater, one that is even greater than him who came to reveal the one who designed us and created us and to reveal the one who actually subjected creation to this futility in order to bring about the fullness of his plan. This is where we're going to jump the hedge and the ditch. (laughs) And turn over with me to Matthew chapter 11. And let us see what Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon, came to say to us. In Matthew 11, Jesus received messengers from John the Baptist who had been imprisoned. And John is wondering, Jesus, are you really the saviour of the world? And Jesus, he sends these messengers back to John with an emphatic, yes, I am. And as Jesus reflects on various people's responses to John's ministry and to his own ministry, pronouncing judgment on those who have rejected him, Jesus then turns to reveal why it is that they have responded in this way. And We pick it up there in chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Jesus, having said that it is the Father who draws people to the Son, he cries out, Come, to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden. He will give you rest. Now that word there, labor, the one who labors, it most literally means the one who toils, grows tired, is weary. Are you one who has grown tired and weary from all the toil at which you toil under the sun? Do you feel like you're stuck on the treadmill of life with no end in sight? Are you frustrated by the futility of the things of this world that you have chased after over and over and over? Come to Jesus, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which means that the ways that he will lead you in are not wearisome. There is no toil with Jesus. There is no vanity. There's no fleetingness. There's no futility, no havel when it comes to Jesus. 
There is fullness of life and joy, meaning and purpose, peace and refreshment. He is gentle and he is lowly. And with Jesus, you will find rest for your souls. No more chasing after the wind. No more meaningless toil. No more going around and around with no sense of purpose and direction. No more purposeless weariness. But rest. Rest for the deepest part of your soul that you have always been longing for. Because what you didn't realize is that the longing was ultimately for him. Your deepest and your most lasting satisfaction can only and will only ever be found in Jesus. Because this is the Father's plan. This is why he sent his Son into the world. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he gives us incredible insight into this great plan of salvation that is being carried out. Because of Jesus, the Son of God, being sent into the world to die for the sins of his people, we can indeed find this rest in him and be set free from the futility of life. Romans 8, verse 20 and 21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see what Paul is saying here? That creation was subjected to futility. And that word there, futility, is actually it's the equivalent Greek word of the Hebrew word hevel. Creation was subjected not willingly, that is, creation didn't choose to be subjected to futility, but because of him who subjected it. Now, who is the one who subjected it? You know, subjection to futility sounds like a bad thing, right? It must have been Satan or Adam when he took the fruit, but no, what we see is that it must be God who subjects. Because Paul goes on to say that it was subjected to futility in hope in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The vanity of life that we experience today is not God's plan B. It was always his plan that we be subjected to futility so that he would send his son into the world and to win for himself a people that would become the children of God. There is a great and future glory waiting for those who belong to him, where there's no more weariness, no more futility, no more pain and sorrow and suffering, but one day, glory. As we enter into the fullness of the rest that Jesus offers to us, we who belong to him will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is the great and the gospel of our good God. All of life is an endless, wearisome cycle. And we need 
to come to Jesus to find rest from it. Come to him. You who toil and strive and are frustrated by the futility of life, come to him. He will give you rest for your soul. If today you want to respond to the grace that Jesus offers to you, if there is a sense that he has done something significant in your life today, I'd love for you to come down the front after the service so that either myself or Danny, that we can pray with you. We'd love to see how we can encourage you in your response to this. Encourage you in your response to the one who brings rest to your soul. But let us pray now and then we will respond to our Lord Jesus in song. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word which brings life to our souls. And thank you that you have brought rest to our souls too as we come to you. Please would you seal your word upon our hearts now and make us quick to come to you every hour that we might no longer live in the frustration and futility of the weariness of life, but that we would be full of hope and joy as we await the day that we obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It is for your glory and for our good that we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.